Hello there, and welcome to the very first edition of So What You're Saying Is. I'm Peter Whittle, I'm director of the New Culture Forum, and this is the very first of a weekly series of interviews, discussions, and debates which we're going to be doing, and which we hope will provide an opportunity and alternative for different voices and different viewpoints, because let's face it, our own media now is becoming incredibly restricted, incredibly biased, and it's always promoting a liberal agenda. So please do subscribe if you like what we're gonna be doing here. And also, if you particularly like it, then of course you can always donate by going to this link. Now, my very first guest knows everything that there is about working in the liberal broadcasting media. Robin Aiken, who was at the BBC for 25 years, working as a local reporter, then right up to the Today programme, is also the author of a new book, which is called The Noble Liar, and how the BBC distorts the news and promotes a liberal agenda. It's right here. Um, it's great that he's our very first guest today. So, welcome, Robin. Robin, the title of your book, what's noble about it? Um, the concept, Peter, of, of a noble lie comes from Plato originally. And the idea is that some lies are told with good intent. And so, the title of the book, The Noble Liar, um, as it refers to the BBC is, uh, is to say that the BBC, in my view, tells a series of well-meaning untruths which it believes are in our best interests. So um, it disguises, sometimes ignores, occasionally distorts reality um, to suit its own particular agenda. Uh, its agenda is not a malevolent agenda, but I believe that it's wrong-headed of the BBC to do this. I think that what the BBC's job is, or should be, is to tell the unvarnished truth, and I don't believe it does. I mean, if we can sort of turn, first of all, to Brexit, obviously, there's a feeling and I think it, you know, when I look at it, it's certainly something that I feel that the BBC have kind of doubled down, right, since the referendum. During the referendum, they appear to play by the rules. I don't know whether you feel that, but now it is virtually undisguised, wouldn't you say? I think, yes, I mean, I think you make a very good point. I think that during the referendum campaign itself, the BBC played it absolutely by the book. And there's an important thing which not everyone understands, but um, in the run-up to a general election or the run-up to a referendum, uh, we're now having more of them, obviously, so it's more relevant. The BBC is bound by something called the Representation of the People's Act. And this means that broadcasters are strictly under an injunction to give fair allocation of airtime to the various political viewpoints. So, in the run-up to the referendum, the BBC was absolutely scrupulous about giving 50% um, to yes and 50% to no. Whereas, hitherto, yeah. before that, for decades, it had been, the, 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 the balance had been completely askew. And you had, um, and I, I think there are some statistics in the book which are uh, drawn from some research which was um, paid for by Lord Pearson of Rannoch. A UKIP man, who uh, 
who actually did an inventory on BBC Current Affairs Outlook and found this imbalance between pro-European and anti-European views. And there was a tiny percentage of people who were anti-EU being interviewed back in the uh, yeah. the yeah. 1990s and yeah. so on. And, but that did change during the period of the referendum itself because the BBC was legally obliged to do so and it kept to the letter of the law. But I think uh, Rod Little once said, you know, when he was at the Today programme as editor for uh, he, one of his uh, colleagues said, you know, you've got to realise, Rod, these people are mad. He was talking about people who <laughs> we'd now call Brexiteers. Yeah. Eurosceptics. These people are mad. See, this is the point. When you say that it's a noble lie, that they feel they're doing good. It's harder and harder, surely, to sustain that feeling when you look at panels that have got four Remainers and one Brexiteer. That looks like, to most people looking at, wait a minute, there's something else going on here. Well, um, and in passing, um, Rod Little was the best editor I ever worked for. Oh, uh, right, okay. I mean, it, uh, <laughs> a man, it was a, it was, it was, it was a pleasure to work for him. Um, the point is, is this, Peter, that the, the, BBC, the BBC's view of Brexit and the EU is, I think, this. The vast majority of people within the BBC think that the EU is a force for good and think that Britain should be part of it. They think that internationalism and um, joint endeavour by nation states uh, leading to the formation of a federal Europe yeah. is the right answer to our problems as a nation and individually. Therefore, when they slant things in favour of the EU, they think genuinely and sincerely they're doing us a favour because they think that is the way that leads to harmony and prosperity. And so they're not, they're not distorting the truth for, in their view, an evil aim, they're doing it for, for our own good. Yeah, but that's you, the point. Isn't that also, in a way, that's the very definition of authoritarianism, isn't it, as well? I mean, in the sense that uh, people always think, you know, they're doing something for your own good or whatever. The way in which people who are Brexiteers or who people who have been Eurosceptics once, the way in which they are treated, though, is with a, a, a real disdain, surely, isn't it? I mean, how many Brexiteers, how many Eurosceptics were there at the BBC when you were there? I mean, did you, did you have to remain quiet in a corner? What? Um, well, my own experience was that there were very, very few people who were sceptical, like I was, of the EU. Um, and I... It, it, it was viewed as a sort of personality problem. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It was as if you had some, if you had the mark of Cain on you, yeah, uh, yeah, if, you yeah. if you were, if you weren't fully signed up to the, the, the pro-EU project. And the problem about the BBC, and I think this is, it goes much wider than the BBC actually, I mean it's the problem in our universities as well. There's a political monoculture in most of these institutions. Um, you know, academics um, who are right-wing, if you like, or who, who have conservative instincts, shall we say, are such a tiny minority that they've, I mean, they've formed their own organisation now, this thing called the Heterodox 
um, Academy, right. which is uh, which is which it was a sort of cross Atlantic yeah. thing, where this small beleaguered bands band of conservative academics are banding together um, to make their case because they're so outnumbered in the senior common rooms of our of our universities, yeah, yeah. and it's the same in the BBC. The thing is, if you're in that bubble, and if you're thinking like the majority think within those circumstances, it's very difficult then to, to see your own biases for what they really are. In the same way that if you and I inhabited a universe where everyone thought like we do, you know, if we were surrounded by social conservatives, cultural conservatives, yeah. then it would be difficult for us to see our bias. That's exactly the way it is in the BBC. I think this is the case with the general, what you might call cultural establishment, isn't it? Absolutely. It goes right through the arts, it goes through broadcasting and, and what have you. I mean, to what extent, you, you do talk about this in the book, and it's a really important point, I think, Rob. When you talk about this kind of, you know, this monolith of opinion, people say, well, how did it get like that, you know? How did it get like that? It's not just a case, surely, like Andrew Marr, I think, admitted, didn't he, that there's a strong element, you know, disproportionate amount of young liberal people, metropolitan people at the BBC. You know, we hear this phrase, long march through the institutions. <laughs> yeah. How do you feel that has worked with the BBC, this idea actually that institutions have been effectively captured? Do you think the BBC had a long march? Yes, I do. And I think that the answer to your question is that it's what I call cultural Marxism. Yeah. So I think what the progressive left in the UK has taken from Marxism is the idea that history is a one-way ticket and there's no getting off the train, that the end destination is um, a progressive destination, their definition of progress, by the way, yeah. uh, and that um, this is an ineluctable process. Um, so there's no stopping it and so uh, we will in this mindset, we will arrive um, at some point in a federal Europe. We will arrive in a country which is um, completely atheistic and a country which has lost all sense of natural patriotic pride in itself. Um, all that is to be subsumed in a greater self. And that's the sort of, that's, that's what I mean by by, by cultural Marxism, the idea that that is a destination which is certain to arrive at some point. I think it's nonsense, actually. I don't believe in, I don't believe in the Marxist interpretation of history. I don't think that, and I think that, you know, any, uh, a, a, any rational observer of history of the past 200 years can see that there have been sudden jolts, sudden turnings in the road and that's the way history it is it doesn't go in a straight line to a predestination yeah, yeah. and and i sense i mean the one thing that i feel is quite hopeful at the moment in britain and of course brexit is the is the is the uh, the actualization of it in some ways is that that was the first time in my lifetime that um people the people of the voters um actually said no that's not what we want they were given the opportunity and they said, no, this is stopping right here. That's why there's been such, that's why it's so painful for the BBC. Yes. It's yeah. so painful yeah. for the cultural left. Yeah. This, you know, Brexit is something which wounds them deeply because it offends their sense that actually, 
you know, maybe we're not going to get to that destination, which was something they always took for granted. But you know that this, there is this sense of complete lack of understanding of the other side. They're, they're, this is where it's different. They might be very offended they, by this, what they see as an attack on their very selves, actually. Oh. But uh, there is also a sense in which they just simply refuse to actually understand why people might have voted the way they did. They still don't, they argue about Brexit in economic terms for a start, wouldn't you say? Mm. Oh, absolutely. Oh, yes. I mean, you know, the, the economic determinism is, is, is absolutely at the forefront of the Brexit debate from the Remain side. Everything is couched in terms of the economy, yeah. as if nothing else matters. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And it's, it's such a misunderstanding, I think, of, of uh, why people voted the way they did. I think that the, you know, the, it was the first opportunity, I think, that a lot of people felt their vote because it was a simple yes-no question, and it was a question of an absolute majority right across the nation, it was the first time when people knew that their vote would actually count. Yeah. And they were engaged by that, and they were, saying, they were saying, we don't like the way things have gone, we want to have our own country back, we want to be able to run our own country, make our own laws. Yeah. It's such a, a simple, fundamental demand in a, 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 a democracy that you would think it should be, you know, everyone could sign up for it, but clearly they can't. I mean, I'm, I'm always reminded by, of the, uh, you know, the remark of Tony Benn, you know, if you can't vote the buggers out, then you don't live in a democracy. Yeah. And I think yeah, yeah. he was absolutely right there, that if you, you can't vote out the people in Brussels, so, you, yeah. so you're not really living in a functioning democracy, unless you've got those, unless the people have their hands on the levers, you know, yes. the voting levers. Yeah. What sort of democracy is it? Well, I mean, you know, you obviously were at the BBC 25 years. You covered many sections of the corporation. Uh, for, as we mentioned, the day programme, local, right across the board. Can you just give us a flavour? If, if I would say that you are, basically I'd characterise you as a small-c conservative, maybe, mm -hmm. or whatever. What actually was it like, therefore? What is it like? For someone, conservative viewpoint, working at the BBC, what was it like? If you could give us some examples, how difficult it could be, or or what? Well, um, yes, I mean it was, it was uncomfortable at times. Um, I think because of the sort of person I am, I actually rather enjoyed it because. Uh, I take the view that journalism should be about causing as, as much of a stink as you can. What's the point of being a journalist if you're not going to cause yeah, a bit yeah. of mischief? So if you're sitting in the Today um, morning meeting discussing ideas, it's great fun to say uh, something that you know um, will be uh, disagreed with by 95% of the colleagues sitting around you. You have to have the confidence to do it, but mm. the point is, it's worth doing. Mm. Luckily, as I mean, I mentioned Rod Little, um, the reason why he was such a great guy to work for, in my view, was because although he didn't think um, as I did then, he seems to have come much more around <laughs> to, to our way of thinking, yeah, actually, yeah, yeah, yeah. Since, he, since he's freed himself from the shackles of the BBC. But he, 
Um, in those days, he was the first BBC editor I ever worked for who was prepared to accept an idea which came from, if you like, the uh, a conservative way of thinking. Yeah. You know, a story which even though he was Labour, actually, even though he was yeah, Labour, yeah. because he was like, because he had yeah. an intellectual yes. curiosity. But working for other editors, um, I can think of. I mean, I worked on the uh, the Money Program for a good few years, and there the uh, I was really quite shocked actually when I first moved there because it was the way in which the scripts were written um, from a purely theoretical point of view before you ever left the building. Right, okay. So yeah. we were writing the story that would appear before it ever appeared on the screen yeah. and then we would go out with our cameras and our microphones to illustrate the script we had written. Because this is actually very interesting, if I can just interrupt, because I was going to ask, for most people, you know, when we talk about bias and BBC and all the rest of it, uh, it seems very conceptual. Actually, on a practical level, how does that bias work? I mean, you're telling us. It's very interesting. Almost like on a step-by-step -step basis, how does it work? Okay. So, Peter, you're, you're, you've, you've been in journalism long enough to know that um, all journalism is a question of selection. So the first step in the process is this. You've got a guy like you or me sitting at a desk, a news desk, and they've got information coming in from all over the world, stories pouring in from every quarter of the globe. Which stories are you going to cover? That's the first question. Yeah. And that is where the first, the bias first makes its mark. So for instance, let's suppose there is a story of a, uh, a knife attack or a gun attack in Sweden by um, an Islamist. Um, are we going to cover that on the BBC today? Probably not. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Why do we make that decision? Well, do we really want to draw attention to that kind of thing? It's not really our kind of story. Yeah. On the other hand, yeah. you know, um, let's say there has been a, uh, a racist attack uh, uh, by a white racist in the north of England on, on, on a black guy. Yeah. Now that's much more our kind of story. Yeah, yeah. That's the kind of story we want. Why do we want that story? Because it fits our view of the world. Our view of the world is this, that um, uh, Muslims are always victims um, and they are victimized and uh, Islamophobia is rife in the country and uh, that's the story we want to tell. Do we want to tell stories about Muslims behaving badly, you know, um, attacking Jews or attacking women? Uh, no, we don't really want to tell those stories. That's why, for instance, <laughs> it took so long and it took some brave journalism by the Times newspaper yeah. to bring that whole thing about the Pakistani rape gangs yeah, into yeah, the open. Yeah. What a struggle that was. Yeah. How was it that all the authorities and all the journalists we're sort of complicit yes. in that silence. It's extraordinary, but isn't it as well, something again you allude to in the book, something I've always found, is that the BBC, again, they might think they're being noble, although it's sounding less and less noble from what you're saying, they sort of believe that they are one of the upholders of multiculturalism, isn't mm. it? That, that is actually one of their tenets. Oh, they yeah. actually see it as something they should promote. Well, that goes completely against the kind of idea of multiculturalism as being a uh, very, very benign thing, doesn't it? Isn't it? Well, 
I say this again, that the, the thing is that the reason why the BBC journalist might take a decision to ignore, or if you like to use a stronger word, suppress yeah. a story about um, a Muslim attacking a woman or whatever, um, is because the calculus is that this is a story which will damage community relations. Right. Yeah. That's so, 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 so when they say we won't tell this story because if we tell this story it'll upset people, uh, race relations will be harmed, multiculturalism will be harmed, so we, we don't tell the story. That's the way it works. And it's done, that's what I mean, they're doing it, <laughs> they think they're doing us a favour. But actually, the problem with that approach is that the people at ground level, ordinary people, know the reality of these things. Mm. And the, become the, the disconnect between what the BBC is telling us and what people know is happening becomes ever and ever greater. And that's why I think there is... Uh, a danger in this for the BBC. I think the BBC has to wake up to the fact that it has a culture which actually separates it from the reality as experienced by many, many millions of British people. I think this is... When people used to complain about bias, I remember it used to always be Tory MPs usually complaining about lack of Tory voices strictly on the news agenda or whatever. But my feeling now really, which is really echoing what you're saying, is that people, the pennies drop slightly, that um, in the general population there is a sort of sense, people feel, for example, that they're being handled more. Mm -hmm. Do you think that's true? I mean, do you think that, that people yes. are basically are more aware of this now than they maybe would, the general public? I think they are, and I think there's a number of different reasons for that. One is that um, the People's exposure to media, of course, has changed enormously, hasn't it, over the past 10, 15 years, 20 years. You know, now people know they have in their hands powerful computers and they can access information from anywhere in the world via the internet, right? And people are wising up to the fact that on the internet, you know, there are some sources of information which are not terribly reliable. But of course, once the penny drops in that way, then you're, you're much more likely to ask the question, about the people who are appearing on your terrestrial TV channels, mm. what about them? Yeah. Are they? I mean, so what, I'm, what I think is that, that people are more media savvy than they were. Yeah. And so this idea that, um, you know, and, and the, great, you know, the great exemplar of this at the moment is Trump and his fake news, isn't yeah, it? Yeah, yeah. It's very interesting, that fake news thing, because, you know, people think that, um, that sort of Guardian reading classes think that what Trump is saying is that what appears in the Guardian and the New York Times and on the main, um, the main TV channels in, in America is inaccurate and false. That's not really what he's saying, I don't think. I think that what Trump is saying, when he says fake news, what he means is, you guys only tell negative stories about me. Mm, mm, right? Mm, mm, That's yeah. why it's fake. Yeah. It's, not because yeah. you're, it's not because you're lying, yeah. it's because you're selecting yes. negative information and only negative information about me, the president. That's exactly. why it's fake. I mean, I, when, 
with some exceptions, usually when people talk about f fake news, they're talking about good old-fashioned bias, aren't they? Yeah. Bias by omission or whatever. This is something as well, uh, which again, you go to in your book in great detail, for example, on immigration. BBC, pro-immigration, almost, you know, to a man. And that is one of the huge divides, isn't it, between, it is. you know, where the majority of people sit and where the BBC sits. There's a case that you mentioned in the book as well, which I remember very vividly. It was the case of Andrew Never, who mm. was a former script, script, uh, a writer for Tony Blair, I believe, mm. wrote this piece where he was very clear about Labour and its uh, social aims of yes. migration. Do you remember rub the nose yes. of the right in diversity, yes. all of that stuff? Now, why, Robin? I mean, or maybe, you know, you've already answered this. Why did that not become a bigger deal on the BBC? Because frankly, you know, when you look at it, that, that should have been covered everywhere, shouldn't it? Yes. Well, it would be if, 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 if people like you and I were news editors in the BBC. Yeah. yeah. But if you're a BBC news editor who thinks diversity, you know, diversity is one of those words, it comes loaded, freighted with good intentions. You yeah. know, diversity, you can't have too much diversity after all, yeah. you know, can you? Yeah. I think you can actually. Yeah. I, think, uh, I think there is a definite limit to the amount of diversity that a, that a society can digest. Um, in the case of Nether, he let the cat out of the bag about why it was that there was an ideological undertow to the Blair government's policies on immigration. They wanted more immigration because they knew that it undermines the, it undermines the conservative position. Because our position as conservatives, as social conservatives and political conservatives, is that um, I'm proud of the country. I think Britain has given far more to the world than it has taken from it. I think we are, have been and remain an essentially good country. Um, and I think that the, it's, you know, it was said a long time ago and it remains the case that British intellectuals are almost unique in the world in hating their own country. George Orwell. <laughs> exactly. Yeah, 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 yeah. Would yeah. rather steal from a poor box than stand for what would send God save the king, right? <laughs> yeah. Yeah, yeah, exactly. True, That's the quote. French don't have this. Do no, they, they right? don't. I mean, the French. <laughs> I mean, you know, talk about talk about national pride. There it goes. You know, it, um, you know, for my taste as an Englishman, it goes a little bit far the other yeah, way. Yeah, but yeah. you know what I mean. Yeah, but yeah. you know the but but British intellectuals. I mean, they're so contemptuous of the society which has, which has borne them. And they're so um, sneering and undermining of many of the things which should be a source of pride and a source of a way of binding us together. The thing is, though, is, is okay. Maybe these people they feel what they do generally, you know, genuinely and out of a reasons they think is good for us and everything. But really, Robert, I mean, it does seem that when you're talking about such big issues as like immigration or multiculturalism or even Brexit, you know, effectively they are damaging, surely, damaging the social fabric by simply not addressing these things and putting them, basically demonizing them. And I think it's still the case, wouldn't you say? Oh, it's I agree. It's still the case on these sorts of issues. Oh, absolutely. I couldn't agree more. I mean, I think that the, um, I mean, I, 
I, I, I say in the book, I think, I use the analogy of, um, I think that, I think all healthy societies have um, a measure of immigration and emigration. Yeah. People leaving and coming. Yeah. That's natural, it's good, it's wholesome and it's right. And it's good for the country, good for the economy. In every sense it's good. But um, in the analogy I, I use in the book is, is that it's like a digestive system. Mm. You know, if you overeat, you're going to get indigestion with potentially unpleasant results. And the number of people that a society can happily and harmoniously um, welcome in and integrate, there is a, there's a sweet spot mm. you know, for the numbers. It is a numbers thing. Mm. If you get too many, too suddenly, too concentrated in one area, you're going to get problems, and that's what we've had. Mm. And that's the result, in my view, of this exactly the thing which Andrew never put his finger on, you know, mm. rubbing the right, rubbing the right's noses in diversity. Mm -mm. That's where it leads you into mass immigration, and then you get a reaction. And of course you get a reaction, because people don't wish to see their familiar neighborhoods and societies. People naturally don't wish massive influxes of foreigners, and why should they? Mm -hmm. on, on immigration, or on, on a, you also go into social conservatism, moral conservatism in your book a lot. It seems now to, to me, and I'm sure to many people watching, that it's not just about the BBC anymore. Uh, obviously we pay for the BBC, you know, uh, under threat of jail, actually. <laughs> but also Channel 4 News, Sky News, amazingly, uh, Channel whatever. Essentially they're much of a muchness now. It seems that the general landscape has changed. Why do you think that is? So first of all, Peter, I agree with you absolutely. Your analysis is right. I don't think there's much of a, much of a difference between any of them, yeah. really. Uh, Channel 4, BBC, um, Sky. Their political and cultural outlook is much the same. I mean, there, there are some slight variations. The reason for it is, I think, is one of the reasons for it is because they all recruit in the same pool. And where mm. do these young journalists get their education from? Well, they get their education from in universities mainly, and then they go into training courses, media study courses, that sort of thing. And um, there is, you know, as has been well publicised in the press over the past few years. You know, there's a growing intolerance on university campuses towards mm. um, different ways of thinking, different approaches to cultural, to, to cultural, you know, different cultural attitudes are frowned upon. Yeah, and you know, there's a sort of political monoculture on a lot of university campuses, and journalistic training in particular, I think, is slanted more towards turning out social activists mm. than it is turning out proper journalists. Well, this is the whole thing, isn't it? That basically journalists uh, are, or reporters are, are actually, you know, active, political activists, yeah. you know, in, 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 in disguise. When we look to the future, what do you see? Uh, I mean, are you, do you think that the BBC will change simply because it has to, because of the changing landscape and the licence fee becoming, you know, more and more difficult? to justify? Is that how it will change? Or will there be a cult? Do you think there will be? We're trying hard, you know, but will there be a cultural change, do you think, that will help it along? 
Um, well, predictions are, 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 are risky, I suppose. I think that the BBC, um, I think that it's, there is a lot of support for the BBC within the political establishment. Mm. Because the way the BBC is at the moment suits the majority of those who are in the political and cultural elite. Because the views and biases of the BBC are by and large the views and biases of them. Mm. Um, I mean, and this is very clear in the Brexit issue. Yeah, yeah. You know, yeah. I mean, the BBC is a, is, is a Remainer, and so are most of the people in the in the building across the road, the MPs, yes, they're yeah, mostly yeah, Remainers. Yeah. And nearly all the people in the House of Lords are Remainers. Yeah. So you've got, you know, so, so, um, so, I mean, they're all in it together in that sense. But I do think, I sense, or maybe this is just wildly optimism, wild optimism on my part, I sense that there is change in the air. Yes, I do. Yeah, I, I mean, do. I, I, I think that people have got, um, that the scales are dropping from people's eyes and people are seeing things for... Um, how they really are. Let me just give you one little example. Mm. This week they announced the Turner Prize. Could it have been a more predictable mm. and boring choice than it actually was? Yeah. You know, in the, you know, it's a joke. Really. Yeah, yeah. Those sorts of uh, you know, to give the to give to give the prize, supposedly Britain's foremost artistic prize to a young woman who's made a video of herself coming out as gay in rural Scotland. Honestly, it sounds like the title of a comedy sketch. Yeah, 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 yeah. You know, there she is, wailing about her plight to the empty mountains, the valleys and the sheep. No one who gives a monkeys. <laughs> I mean, really, it's so self-absorbed. It's yes. so kind of look at me, you know. Yeah. And, and I think that, that people are just, yeah, it's just a very small example. It wouldn't mean much to a lot of people who don't take an interest in such things. But it's that kind of thing. It's the sort of arrogance of the cultural elite, which will be its undoing. This idea that there is only one way of thinking mm. about things. And that we all must accept that all these things that they think are great, we all must think of as great. Well, we don't. Mm. And I think an increasing number of us are, are saying enough is enough and, you know, thinking for ourselves. That's what I hope, anyway. And finding ways as well of expressing that, which yeah. is a great thing. Robin, it's great. Thank you very, very much. Uh, I would say again, the book, The Noble Liar, how the BBC is uh, producing a liberal agenda. This is it here. Really worth reading. Thank you very much, uh, Robin. And uh, we will be back next week. Thanks very much for watching. So what you're saying is, and please do subscribe, won't you? Thank you. Bye-bye.